The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're ready to resume our study of hermeneutics. This is the next to the last chapter in Zook. Next week deals with application, and we'll talk about that, uh, kind of the distinction between interpretation and application. But today is the, the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And this is something we've talked about already quite a bit, just in different ways when we went through Life of Christ, when Matt taught us on Isaiah 7. Um, it's a real important issue, and it's a real intriguing issue in a lot of ways, how you decide or what you decide about how the New Testament uses the Old Testament is going to shape your theological system, it's going to shape your theological conclusions. So it's one of the reasons that we're doing this class is really to help you see valid principles of interpretation and that not only help you in your own study and conclusions but also help you evaluate the way that others who would differ with you uh, reach their conclusions. So as we get to the end I hope it's been a, a profitable class for you. I've really I've taught through this class a number of times. I always enjoy it. I think it's I, I didn't even know what the word meant before I went to seminary and I think that's a shame. I think we need to be teaching this in the church so I'm really grateful for the opportunity. So let's talk a little bit more about the significance of the issue of you know how you decide the New Testament writers are using the Old Testament. It's estimated that they're between 250 and 300 direct quotations of the Old Testament and New Testament. That is, they're introduced by standard formulas, and it's very clear that they're citing the Old Testament. There is even disagreement there as to exactly how many there are, uh, but that's the range. Now, once you move to an allusion, an allusion is not so explicit. It's questionable whether or not the author is actually quoting from the, New, uh, the Old Testament or, or even just alluding to it. And that range, as Zook records it at least, is from 442 to 4,105. So you can imagine people, you know, might use two words that come in the same order in the Old Testament, and they see it in the New Testament and say, well, that's an allusion. It, it really comes down to how you define what an allusion is. As far as citations, 23 of the 27 New Testament books have Old Testament citations. Only Philemon and the three epistles of John do not contain any. Matthew, Acts, Romans, and Hebrews are the ones with the highest concentration. Uh, we talked about this when we went through the book of Revelation. Over half of the verses in the book of Revelation have some allusion back to the Old Testament, but the Old Testament's never cited as a quotation in the book of Revelation. Both the citations and the allusions come from both the original Hebrew text, what's called the Masoretic text, and the Septuagint, which would have been the Bible of most New Testament believers uh, during the era of the New Testament. Septuagint, of course, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done about 200 years before Christ. So again, these New Testament citations and allusions are a significant part of the debate of how the two testaments relate to one another and therefore which broader theological system you embrace. Uh, we normally think about the two main ones being covenantal theology and dispensational theology. I came across this in another book that was written as a series of essays that were honoring S. Lewis Johnson and this guy just looked at kind of church history and tried to identify uh, the way that uh, theologians have viewed the Old Testament across church history. One is strictly as history 
And really, in that case, it's a liberal theologian that's denying prophecy or the, the ability for a man to prophecy, uh, to foretell the future as, you know, a mouthpiece for God. Secondly, is that the Old Testament is an allegory, or it contains allegories. And we saw when we st started our class how prominent that was early in church history. Thirdly would be that you have to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New. That is the hermeneutic of covenant, covenantal theology. Uh, and it really, I think it makes the meaning of the Old Testament in its original context and to its original audience unavailable to that original audience. They didn't have the New Testament when they were reading the Old Testament. And I just don't think it makes sense to do that. Would they say they do that? I think so. Uh, it depends on how you ask it and who you ask, but they would definitely say that New Testament revelation trumps or superior to Old Testament revelation, and that you have to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New. We do just the opposite. We read the, the New Testament in light of the Old, which makes more sense, right? Because we have the Old Testament. We have its background. The New Testament writers... Granted, a lot of the New Testament is dealing with something that's completely unrevealed in the Old Testament. That is, it's dealing with the church. But particularly the Gospels and through the book of Acts, you have to have the Old Testament background to understand what's going on. So to me, it just makes sense that you would read the Bible in the order that it was given rather than reading something that came later. And they would say it's superior because it talks more explicitly about Christ, even though they grant that the Old Testament talks about Christ. But they would say it's superior revelation in that sense, and therefore, because it's superior, we have to read the Old Testament lie of the New. What that ends up doing as well is everything in the Old Testament is shadows or types of what's to come in the New, and the New Testament is the fulfillment of everything that was anticipated in the Old. And we would say there is some fulfillment in the New Testament for sure, but a lot still remains to be fulfilled. And we would just read those Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophecies, more literally. And that's why we still expect, if they would grant to covenantalists would, that if you interpret Old Testament prophecy more literally, then you'd have to say it's not yet fulfilled. So they have to end up spiritualizing it, which they have no problem with, because they say that's what the New Testament authors do. So it's not like they don't have a case at all. But it, it comes down to wrestling with what's valid interpretive principles, and that's why this, I think this study is so important. So the last one, and this is what we would embrace, is that the Old Testament is complete. It has uh, integrity in its own context. Now, <clears throat> when I say it's complete, I'm not saying that the New Testament's not important. It's extremely important. But I'm saying that you can understand what's being said in the Old Testament in its own context. New Testament sometimes fills out what it says, but the New Testament doesn't change the meaning of the Old Testament passages. So I think especially on this topic that we're looking at this morning, that methodology is really important. And we're going to give you steps at the end that talk about the, the method of trying to figure out how the New Testament writer using the Old Testament. We talked about that some already. But um, people can come to different conclusions. But if you follow that method every time, I think that's the best way to, to, to be fair, to be fair with the text. So in order to understand how the New Testament writers were using the Old Testament, every citation and allusion must be analyzed both in its Old Testament context and to understand what it meant then and then 
how the New Testament writer is using it. It has to be consistent and fair, and it has to be done using good hermeneutical principles like the ones we've been talking about. So again, the ultimate issue is hermeneutical. So Zook lists the top 10 ways uh, that New Testament writers use the Old Testament. Some of these, I think, overlap, but we're just going to look at, as a, at an example of each one, and we can start to see those differences more uh, better. So first would be to point up the accomplishment or realization of an Old Testament prediction. In other words, this is the one we probably think about the most, is that something's predicted in the Old Testament and is fulfilled in the New. And here's one in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 2, 5 through 6. He's citing Micah 5, 2, one of the latter prophets. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, basically predicting where the Messiah is going to come from. And we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that that was a prophecy that was fulfilled. Now I should note here that Zook puts Isaiah 7.14 in this category, as do many other people. I don't think that's the best place to put Isaiah 7.14 because I believe there was a fulfillment in Isaiah's day that had to be in order for it to be assigned to Ahaz, and then there was a heightened fulfillment when Christ himself was born. But we'll get to that category here in just a little bit. Here's another one. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That was uh, originally predicted in Zechariah 9.9, fulfilled in Jesus' tri triumphal entry. Now, both of those are examples that come from Matthew's Gospel. We've talked a lot in our previous lessons about how that's not always the case in Matthew, right? Sometimes, for example, he cites Hosea 11, uh, out of Egypt have I called my son, which is not even a prophecy in the context of Hosea 11. It's looking back to Israel being called out of Egypt, but then he applies that to Christ. Um, so I don't think at least not in the way that's described here that Hosea 11 is in any way predicting the fact that Jesus is going to go down to Egypt as a baby and then come back out. But Matthew gives it that meaning, and, and again, that'll come under a different category. Secondly, to confirm that a New Testament incident is in agreement with an Old Testament principle. We have here a quote from Amos 9, 11, and 12 uh, that James is... James is the speaker in Acts 15, and this is at the Jerusalem Council. He says, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. Well, I should back up. What was the issue in the Jerusalem Council? Acts 15. What was it that they were coming together to try to decide? Exactly. Whether or not they should be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And it's a really fair question, right? I mean, on one hand, it seems to make sense. Okay, if you're going to embrace the Messiah of Israel, you've got to embrace the law that was given through Moses. And, and that's what proselytes did before, right? Back in the Old Testament, you could be, as a Gentile, you could be a proselyte and embrace the God of Israel. Uh, you, you couldn't necessarily follow all the laws of Gentile, but you followed as much of it as you could. 
And so here the issue is whether or not that's going to continue. And again, this is after the Spirit has come at Pentecost, which we recognize now as the birth of the church. And there's lots of things like this that have to be worked out. And that's what the book of Acts really describes is this transition from Israel to the church. But this is what James says in that context in Acts 15. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. And he's talking about there, I think, the, the lineage of David, probably more so than the uh, temple. The tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. You know, I read that now. I wonder if he, he might be referencing the, the temple. But in any case, I don't think, again, that that's a direct prediction of the fact that these Gentiles are now coming to Christ. They're embracing Christ as a Messiah, and they're embracing the gospel. And, um, you know, that this was a prediction that there would eventually be Jew and Gentile in one body in the church. I think this is talking about something that is still yet to be fulfilled the way that we would understand fulfillment and something to be done still in the future to us today. But James cites it, again, as at least a principle. I mean, the plan all along, right, was that God would draw the Gentiles and the Gentile nations to himself through the witness nation of Israel. And now these Gentiles are coming to Israel's Messiah, but it's coming they're coming through a new institution called the church rather than through the way that the Old Testament described they would come through Israel. Does that make sense? Kathleen. This be a reference to the Babylonian captivity ending up with the temple being rebuilt and we're still all part of Gentile, you know, Sure. So she's asking if this could be a reference, a prediction of the restoration of Israel and their temple after the Babylonian captivity. I'm going to defer to you on that. On that. Well, in Micah, it, it's talking about Assyria. So this is Amos. Oh, we're not on the Micah. Yeah. So on Amos, uh, I don't know the answer. Yeah, I don't know that off the top of my head. There are, certainly there are prophets that do that. They anticipate the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of Israel that comes later. I'm not sure that Amos is one of them, and I'm, I'm primarily not sure because of the timing of Amos. This, yeah, I mean, that was largely complete at the time that James yeah. says what he says in Acts 15. They're not looking for a rebuilding of the temple there. Yeah, like it's already been done, and look, God's doing it. So Amos 9.15 says, I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be uprooted from their land, which I have given them. So, so that it, can't be that. It, again. If they're going to be uprooted again. That's right. Well. Yeah. That's right. So this, you make a good point in that there are prophecies that deal with the restoration, and that, that's fulfilled. Remember, Daniel even looks back to Jeremiah as a fulfillment of their being able to return to the land and they rebuilt the temple. But there are many prophecies too that look to that ultimate rebuilding and temple that will be part of the millennial kingdom. And I think Amos falls into that one. 
So what Matt did there is exactly what we want to do. Go back to the Old Testament context, read a little bit more, uh, try to understand exactly what the prediction is, and then we have a better way of understanding whether or not it's been fulfilled and whether or not this passage in Acts 15 is fulfilling it. And I would say clearly that it's not. But the principle... Exactly. That's exactly right. This is one of the things that I, I liked about Dyer's article. You can't just go on the use of the word fulfilled to say, okay, there was a prediction in the Old Testament, it's come to pass now. You have to go back and understand the specifics of the prophecy and understand how much or, or whether or not it truly has been fulfilled and where it's being cited in the New Testament. So fulfillment language, even the word fulfilled, which is not used in this one, but it's used a lot in Matthew's gospel, can mean other things than just a straight prediction and fulfillment. Okay, so this is Paul citing Isaiah. He's citing it in Romans 2, and it comes from Isaiah 52. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God, and this is where the quotation is where the citation begins, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Now when Isaiah writes that, who's he talking about? He's, he's talking about his audience. He's talking about the people of his own day. It's not a prediction that this will happen down the road. When Paul cites it, he's saying again, just like it happened back there in Israel's history, this is what you're doing today. You, you boast in the law on the one hand, but you break the law at the same time, and that causes God to blaspheme. That causes God's name to be blasphemed, I should say. One more question. Sure. Yes. And so this is, he's actually doing a lot of encouragement. Yes. It happens a lot in the prophets. I mean, the <clears throat> we'll talk about this, I, I suppose, when we get to Old Testament survey. There's a, a very simple storyline that runs through the Old Testament. It starts basically with Abraham. And that is the prediction that God, on the one hand, is going to bless Abraham, multiply his seed, make a great nation of him. And then not too many books down the road in the Pentateuch, there's a prediction, well, there's this option that he sets out for the nation of Israel. If you obey me, I'll bless you in every way. You'll be mighty as a nation. Other nations will be afraid of you. And I will end up drawing the other nations to myself through the blessings that I put on you. On the other hand, if you're disobedient, then I'm going to discipline you, and ultimately I'm going to throw you out of the land. And still, ultimately, even further, one day you'll repent and you'll be restored back to the land. All that is laid out in Genesis through Deuteronomy, especially in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And as you continue to read the Old Testament, that's exactly what happens, right? Israel is disobedient. God's very patient with them. He sends prophets to them to call them back, and they refuse to listen. They'll ultimately cast out of the land, and they're still out of the land largely. I mean, there's 
there certainly were people that returned to the land when they had the opportunity, but there were a lot that did not. Still today, uh, a lot of Israelites are not in the land, and they've yet to be restored to the land in the way that the prophets talk about them. Because in all these prophets, there's these promises of restoration that were built on the basis of what was said in Deuteronomy 30 that has still not yet come to pass. So if you take those literally, we are still looking for a future restoration of Israel, and, and all that happens when Christ comes back, as talked about in, in uh, Amos 9. The Bible talks about people being restored to Israel. Will all the Jewish people one day be restored to Israel? Because remember after the Babylonian captivity, there were some that decided, even though they could go back, there were some that decided to stay out. A lot. There are many who have good lives in other countries yep. that are doing well and whatever business people and all that. Yes. Are they going to just somehow, is God going to call them so divinely, supernaturally to go back to Israel or no? During the time of the tribulation, a lot of Israel will be purged. I think this is something that's affirmed both in the latter prophets and in the book of Revelation. But there will be a section that's redeemed and recognizes Christ as their Messiah filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are the ones that are sent to a place of protection in Revelation 12, and those are the ones that ultimately enter into the millennial kingdom. So at least at, at the beginning of the millennium, and I'm more convinced that at that point, all Israel saved, even their successive generations recognized the Messiah, and we know with the other nations that's not necessarily the case, right? It all starts with redeemed people at the beginning of the millennium, but there's a group of nations at the end that, that rebel against God one last time. So, yes, once you get to the Millennial Kingdom, at least, I think all Israel is redeemed. But they've, they've been purged through the Tribulation period, and many of them, I think, die during that period. Okay, so prior to that, then they, they may die purged through, uh, it, as though they, even though they're living in other countries. So that's that's correct, okay. yeah, because okay. of the worldwide nature of that Tribulation. Right. <clears throat> I mean... My guess, there's a lot more Jewish people living outside of Israel today than there are inside, right? Sure. And even, even though they could come back there now, they choose not to for different reasons. All right, another way that New Testament writers use the Old Testament is to explain or clarify a point made in the Old Testament. So there's disagreement about what Jesus is doing exactly in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I don't think he's adding to the law or changing it, I think he's clarifying what the law meant from the very beginning. And there's a need to do that, right? Because for 400 years, there's been this silence from God, no prophets speaking. They've relied upon people like the Pharisees and the scribes to teach them the law and teach them what it said, and they've corrupted it. And so what Jesus is doing a lot of the time is contrasting what they've been taught, and sometimes it does match up with what the Old Testament says, but it, it comes from a very external kind of righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees demonstrated. And he's going to the heart of the law and really restoring the true meaning of the law, even as it was given in the Old Testament. This is what he says, Christ says in Matthew 5, and, and again, I, I think we've talked about this, but this is the theme passage, I would argue, for the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, a lot of people will say, okay, Christ fulfilled the law, therefore the law is no more. We're not under the law, which we would agree with. 
it's been fulfilled. The law is kind of really hard anyway. Who, who would want to live under that system? Well, I, I think the Jewish people loved being under the law, the ones that were obedient. Uh, David certainly loved the law. And the law has not been done away with. Uh, again, if you believe in those prophecies as still to be fulfilled in the Millennial Kingdom, the law is back in force in the Millennial Kingdom. You've got the temple, you've got priests, you've got sacrifices, you've got Israel back in the land, you've got the feast. Um, so I would argue that when Christ says he's fulfilling the law here, and it's the same verb that we're seeing in other places for fulfill, plerao, uh, he's talking about clarifying what the law meant from the very beginning. And he goes on to say, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. I don't think that was all accomplished during his first coming. I think there still remains things to be accomplished when he comes back. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that had to be a real shock to the people that heard it because they were held up as the examples and they were in many ways very fastidious about keeping the law, but it was not coming from the heart. It was very much an external kind of righteousness and I think that's what Christ is going after and that's, what, <clears throat> that's why he's contrasting things like You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. I say to you, if man, even if man lusts on a woman in his heart, that he's guilty of adultery. Um, so it, he's clarifying that the purpose of the law from the beginning was to condition the heart. And out of that is going to flow the action. Okay? I don't know what number we're on now, but fourth. Thank you. The fourth purpose of, uh, or the fourth way that the New Testament writers use the Old Testament is to support or furnish evidence for, corroborate a point being made in the New Testament. So here, Jesus is himself is speaking. He cites 2.24 in defense of no divorce, of a man and a wife not being separated once they've come together. And he's interacting with the Pharisees as he does this. He said, and they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, here's the question in my mind. Where did Moses do that? I don't think he did. Now, Deuteronomy 24 talks about case, and it's case law. It says, if a man takes a, a woman as his wife, and if he finds some uh, reason to divorce her, I'm paraphrasing significantly here, and if he gives her a certificate of divorce. And then he goes on to say that if that happens and, her, and she remarries and then her husband dies and she tries to go back to her first husband, you can't do that. It's against the law. Uh, so I don't think Moses ever uh, wrote or gave permission to, to give a woman a certificate of divorce. Pharisees in other places as well say that he did uh, I think that's a misinterpretation by the scribes and Pharisees. But then we have to deal with what comes next. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, I, I think the commandment there is 
recognizing that that is going to happen. Divorce is going to happen. And he's dealing with the aftermath of it, Moses is, in that day. Um, the main point that Jesus is making here is, no, there, there aren't grounds in this case for divorce. Uh, he says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus himself is citing the Old Testament to make his point for, and he's arguing against the Pharisees who believe there were certain cases where divorce was legitimate. Here's another example of the same kind of use. This is Paul in Romans 4, citing Psalm 32. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Remember, this is in the middle of an argument that Paul is making of justification by faith. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. He cites David in Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, you don't enter into that condition by uh, works or by doing something to compensate for your sin. You enter into it by repentance, I would argue, and turning from your sin, confessing it, but recognizing, too, that God forgives someone who repents in that way. Certainly for us today, it's uh, we recognize that we can, we're forgiven of our sins because Christ died for all of our sins. We believe that. It doesn't mean that we uh, don't need to confess our sin or that we don't repent, change our attitude towards our sin, and in some cases even make restitution for our sin. But we're forgiven not because we've earned credit for our works. We're forgiven because of God's grace and our faith in the finished work of Christ. Next reason to illustrate a New Testament truth. Uh, this is Paul in Romans 10 citing Isaiah 53. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings for Isaiah writes, Lord, who has believed our report? And again, Isaiah is saying that to his audience. And he's talking about his report. Um, Paul is, is using that in his argument in Romans 9 through 11 about why Israel hasn't, or most of Israel, hasn't embraced Jesus as the Messiah. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul citing Isaiah 29, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Again, he's using Old Testament incident to uh, illustrate a New Testament truth. All right? To apply the Old Testament often in a creative way to a New Testament incident or truth. And here's the ones that get really interesting because when you go back to the Old Testament context on these, it's, it seems that they're doing something funny uh, as they cite the Old Testament to make their case. Here's Paul in Romans 8 citing Psalm 44. Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Again, uh, there may be some overlap there with some of the categories we've already talked about, but he's talking about something that's happening in his day, but he's citing an Old Testament similar incident to make that case. Uh, 
and again, this is the one that we've talked about a lot. Isaiah 7, 14 is cited in Matthew 1. All this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. In order for that to be a sign to Ahaz, it had to be a child born in that day. And it was a sign that God was with them and that they weren't going to be overrun by these two kings. Obviously, uh, in the case of what Matthew's writing about with the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary, it's heightened. It's a supernatural birth uh, to a, a woman who had never known a man before. And God was with the Jews in an even greater way because he's coming as God incarnate in the person of Christ. So as we've talked about, uh, especially in the life of Christ, Matthew has a lot of these in his gospel. And I would really encourage you, if you've not done so already, to read that article by Dyer. It's actually a chapter out of this book called Issues in Dispensationalism. Uh, it's a good book. It addresses a lot of different issues like these. And um, that's just one chapter that Dyer wrote about the biblical meaning of fulfillment and the fact that that word, which when we hear fulfillment, we think of one thing typically, and that is a prediction in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New or fulfilled later. He's just showing how that can be, that same word can be used and it be something else. And he's also really encouraging you, anytime you have an Old Testament prophecy, to see all that's being predicted and the context in which it's being predicted and then seeing how that matches up with something that's being cited in the New Testament. <clears throat> to summarize an Old Testament concept, what does the Scripture say? Uh, this again is Paul in Romans 4. What does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now what is it in the original context that Abraham is believing? What is it that God has just promised to him in that context? So, what'd you say? Children, multiple, multiplied descendants in this context. And let me read it for you. Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6. He, God, took him, Abraham, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. So that, again, is, another, that is an example of righteousness by faith. Uh, Paul's using it in a different sense in Romans 4 of spiritual righteousness, righteousness that's granted to us as we believe the gospel and believe in Christ and are forgiven of our sins. The principle of justification by faith is throughout the Bible. You have to look in each case as to what the, the faith is in, right? I mean, I think, I think that some covenantalists would argue, well, even all the way back there, they believed in the coming Messiah, and they were justified by faith. Well, again, if you look at the context, what he's believing in is the promise that God made in the multi multiplication of his descendants. Kathleen. Yes. He believed God. He was counted righteous for doing that. But the, what he believed was the promise that God had just made. And he only could believe it because he believed God. 
Yes. I mean, I think that was that would be a presupposition that he knew God, he knew him to be all those things, and when he gave him that promise, he believed because of his knowing God to be that way. Well, it's interesting because even after he was told that Sarah would have a baby, you know, he, he didn't think so, or he wondered about it. Sarah wondered about it too because they were past the age of childbearing, but they never completely forsook their faith in God's promise. They were just trying to work out the house. That's that's right. Exactly. Sometimes. The New Testament is just using Old Testament language. Uh, Peter is speaking about the church. In 1 Peter 2.9 says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, those same descriptions sorry, are used of Israel in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of parallels between the church and Israel, right, as far as are being God's people and are being separate from the world and we're a kingdom of priests in that we in that we represent God in the world today Israel did that as a nation in the Old Testament time but similarity does not mean identity you can't read this and say well Peter's using this terminology that was used of Israel in the Old Testament therefore the church must be the new Israel you can't do that and people do. Okay, I want to give you a really good example, and this is from this same book. And this kind of fits with this lesson and also with what we looked at before with typology. But this guy's name is A. Berkeley Mickelson. He's written a book on hermeneutics, and he reveals his own hermeneutic very clearly in this quote. Now, when I say Ezekiel 40 through 48, I immediately think of several things. Does anybody else? What, what's happening in that section of Ezekiel? Okay, so the new temple, very detailed description of the temple building in 40 through 43. What else? The activities around that temple, the sacrifices, the fact that the sons of Zadok, which David taught us about last Sunday, I think, in the covenant with Phineas. Um, Israel being back in the land, the land allotments for Israel, it's all predicted as coming down the road one day. And again, if you put yourself in the, in the shoes of the original audience, they know that they've lost all that. They had all that in their history, and, and they lost it through disobedience. God told them beforehand that they would lose it if they disobeyed. So how would they understand that passage? It would give them great hope because they're looking for their restoration as a nation. Kathleen. I read they only thought in terms of the present and the future kingdom. So were they thinking what we call the millennial kingdom when, when God sets up his throne? Well, at this point, if I got Ezekiel chronologically right, they they had the kingdom in their past, right? So they they would think of that as well, that they, they did have a kingdom in their history. They lost that when they ultimately were destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. And so they did look forward to the restoration of that kingdom. And again, it goes all the way back to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30 anticipating their restoration. So I should say it better. They thought of the present age and the future. 
present age was different than the future age because in the future age the Messiah would be king. Well, again, I thought that's the same way you said it before. Uh, so they I just wouldn't want to leave out the past. Yeah, but that was all part of the age. That's what I read. Okay. So the, the church was not even thought. Oh, no. They yeah. went from Jewish to Jewish. Well, there was just no revelation about church as Jew and Gentile in one body the way it would become. And Paul calls it a mystery when he writes about it. So it was all about the nation of Israel and that being the means by which the Gentiles would come to recognize their God. And they thought that's what Jesus was promising to do when he came, right? And he was. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we still believe is going to happen. Um, but in the meantime, we have this entity called the church that wasn't foreseen in the Old Testament, and that's the means by which God is saving people today. But here's what Mickelson says as, as he interprets Ezekiel 40 through 48. And again, he has to read through the New Testament to do this. Because of what God did in Christ, there will be no return to the shadows. So tells you that he's looking at that vision as a shadow of, of a greater reality but rather there will be the worship of God on a transcendently higher level holding to the one people of God in the New Testament consisting of Jew and Gentile and he cites the scriptures there that support that an interpreter could apply these materials to the worship of God in the time of consummation the 12 tribes stand for the unity of the people of God they don't stand for the 12 tribes of, of Israel as they are historically defined. If the interpreter keeps a literal base, while at the same time he makes use of the principles of correspondence and analogy, uh, in the midst of the children of Israel forever, with Revelation 7, 9, and 15, which speaks of God's dwelling with those from all nations and tribes and people and tongues, Revelation 21, 3, which speaks of the tabernacle of God with men, he will dwell with them. He will achieve very satisfactory adult results. In other words, he's not seeing uh, those as literal. Ezekiel 43:48. He's not seeing um, a literal temple in the future. He's not certainly not seeing sacrifices. He said at the very beginning, you wouldn't return to the shadows, and that's how he regards that whole system of worship in the Old Testament. So, again. That, that reveals his hermeneutic. And I hope now, when you read somebody like that, that you would see how they're, what their approach is and, and how they're reaching their conclusions. To draw a parallel with an Old Testament incident, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Here's the quotation, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have torn down thy altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I've kept my, for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's the quotation. What's the point? What, why does Paul cite that in Romans 11? What is he, what case is he making, or what? Uh, parallel is he drawing? There weren't a lot of Jewish believers in his time, and it wasn't the first time. And and yet, what there weren't a lot, but there were some, right? And that's what he says in the next sentence. 
in the same way as those 7,000 didn't bow the knee to Baal, which wasn't many in the context, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's grace. And the remnant in this case would be those that were within the church at this point in time, Jewish believers who had embraced Messiah. Um, he's making the argument more largely, more broadly in 9 through 11 that Israel hasn't been forsaken and they will eventually recognize Christ as their Messiah. I think this is the last one, to relate an Old Testament situation to Christ. The focus here is on the typical aspect in the Old Testament passage that relates to Jesus' life and ministry. Remember when we talked about Walton's article last time, I think it was last Sunday, uh, we don't recognize the type until the New Testament writer identifies it for us. Uh, at least it's not clear in the Old Testament text that that is a type. A lot of citations from the book of Psalms apply to Jesus in a typical way. For example, we've talked about this one a lot. Um, this is not from the Psalms, but this is the one where he rose, took the child and his mother by night, departed for Egypt. It's there until the death of Herod that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt did I call my son. Again, in Hosea's context, it's talking about Israel coming out of Egyptian bondage. And Matthew's is talking about Christ. There are parallels even between those two entities, Israel and Christ. Um, I'll let you explore those on your own. Here's one from the author of Hebrews as he cites Psalm 2-7. And keep in mind here, within the book of Hebrews is the argument of the superiority of Christ to what has, become, has come before. Uh, his superiority to angels, for example, and, and that's uh, the context here in chapter 1. For to which of the angels did he, God, ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Um, he's arguing for Christ's superiority because he had this intimate relationship, this father-son relationship. And I would argue that he's using that relationship as it comes from the Old Testament with the Davidic king to make the case here in the book of Hebrews. Here's the one that we we read Psalm 22 this morning. Um, it's, it's spread throughout the New Testament. Christ himself quotes Psalm 22. And I know people that believe that Psalm 22 is was written prophetically and believe it only applies to Christ, not to anybody else. I think it applies to David. I think he's writing about his own experience first. And then New Testament writers and Christ himself are picking up on that and, again, pointing out correspondences between things that happened to David and then Christ himself. All of these are designed by God himself. And so we've talked about how types tie the plan of God together as we look in the rearview mirror and prophecy as we go, look forward down the road. But this is just one example of Psalm 22 being cited. They said, therefore, to one another, and talking about Christ's robe as he's stripped naked and, and hung on the cross, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, decide whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I think they did that to David first, and then to Christ ultimately. All right, this, I think, is our last slide. Again, 
this is just the method that you should go through. Anytime you come across an Old Testament citation in the New Testament, a lot of our Bibles make it very easy to recognize when that's happening. Well, one, by the introductory formula of for so it is written or as the Scripture says. But also, at least in my Bible, they put the Old Testament quotation in italics. So you know it's being cited. It's usually a cross-reference there in the margin where you can go back and look and see what it was in its own context. So first you study the New Testament context in which that citation or allusion occurs. As part of that, you investigate the Old Testament context of the passage to which the quotation or allusion occurs, and then try to understand it in its own context first. And the more familiar you become with the Old Testament, the easier that becomes. It's still not going to be easy. There's going to be certain books that are more obscure to you, and it just takes more work. But we, we want you to be familiar with the whole Bible. Two-thirds of our Bible is in the Old Testament. A lot of it has still not been fulfilled, and it's to our benefit to continue to be students of the Old Testament. Note the differences, if any, between the Old Testament passage and its New Testament quotation or citation. And at the same time, note the correspondences and try to understand how the New Testament writer is using it. Uh, and that's where these ten purposes would be helpful. Uh, again, sometimes it can be easier than others. Some of these purposes might overlap. There might be more than one. But you just want to try to understand how the New Testament writers, sometimes it is going to be a straight prediction and fulfillment. Oftentimes it won't be. And it's just something you have to work on and practice, and I think you get better at it the more you do it. Obviously, the more we encourage people to read through the Bible once a year, and that's an exercise for which there is no substitute. You just see things better when you do that. There's a place for that. There's a place for more intense study of smaller passage. But as you read from Genesis to Revelation, you see how later Revelation builds on earlier Revelation. And you can't do that any other way. Finally, you relate the conclusions to the New Testament passage. So I hope those are helpful to you. Uh, it's, not, it's not a really complicated method. It's not necessarily going to be easy depending on how well you understand the Old Testament passage in particular. But I think it's a pretty straightforward way to do it. So next week, we'll, we've really been talking about interpretation all the way through on these principles of interpretation hermeneutics. Next week, we're going to talk about the difference, really, between interpretation and application. It's two, you need to keep the two different or separate uh, because application has to be built first on good interpretation. Yes, Aunt Norma. Ooh, I'd have to do some research on that one. That's a hard question. I mean, obviously, all the ones that talk about Christ's first coming are fulfilled. Uh, it seems to me there's an awful, I would say more, that deal with consummation and his reigning from the throne of David. Sometimes those two things are cited side by side in the Old Testament prophets, and it's not clear that there's this long time between them. Uh, if I had to guess, I would say more have not been fulfilled than fulfilled at this point. Don't hold me to that. 
You mentioned earlier toward the beginning, Frank, um, the Old Testament understood as complete, possessing its own theological integrity. Um, I, I don't understand what you mean by that, because the Old Testament without the New, you couldn't really understand what it was talking about. And the New Testament without the Old, you couldn't really understand what it was talking about. When I tried to explain it to my mother, I said, it, it's, like, it's like a movie. You know, the 400-year the period is the intermission. And then you start with the second half, and it kind of it kind of sheds light on what they were talking about at the beginning. Okay, but wouldn't you say, depending on the movie, that there's a lot that you would understand before intermission? You wouldn't have to have the last right. part. Now, to understand the ending and how things come out, absolutely, you got to have the end. And I don't mean to say, when I say complete, I mean to say that you don't necessarily have to have the New Testament to understand what an Old Testament passage is talking about. Again, if you if you say that you do, then you make that meaning uh, unaccessible to the people that, lots of, of people. The old, of the Old Testament. That's right. Um, and after all, it was written as revelation to them. Now, I think there were, you know, I think the regenerated people in the Old Testament understood what God was saying when he's talking, again, in broad terms, about their future restoration. Certainly they understood. That's right. Certainly they understood all the difficulty they had been through uh, for the punishments. So I think that when I, and I'm quoting this other guy, but when he says it's complete, I think he says, what he means is that you can understand it within its own context, and the, the New Testament, does, you don't have to have it to interpret an Old Testament passage. Just, just greater clarification. That's right. Okay. The New Testament does, I remember one of our professors talking about how it, he would describe it as something that blooms out, and it does provide uh, greater detail of what was anticipated in the Old Testament, but I think it's clear enough, I think you can understand the Old Testament with without having the new, as far as what it's looking forward to. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for your attention. Uh, we'll have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for the totality of Revelation, and uh, we recognize that there is that 400-year period in between the Testaments, but in a sense, it's one story. Uh, there's new revelation that, that Paul calls a mystery, which is the church, not anticipated in the first two-thirds of your scriptures. And, and we understand that from what Paul tells us about it and other New Testament writers. But there's also this plan that you've laid out for us in the Jewish scriptures that we still look forward to many of uh, the fulfillments of those prophecies, to the return of Christ, to the restoration of Israel, to a rule and reign of Christ on the throne of David, unlike anything that we've seen in history, and then ultimately to a new heavens and new earth. We thank you that you've already saved us from our sins. You've given us a new nature. You've given us an ability to resist sin and temptation in, in a way that we didn't have before we became believers. But we look forward to the redemption of our bodies and the redemption of all creation so that we live no longer under the curse that, that creation is still under now and groans for redemption itself, but we live in a new heavens and new earth with a consummation of salvation and uh, no more barrier between you and us. Help us to look forward to that 
and to let that impact the way that we live today. And I pray that we, as we do that, we would be faithful as witnesses, that we belong to you and we belong to Christ, and that uh, we have opportunities to talk to other people about that as well. We, we thank you for the time we had together this morning in worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.